Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another fantastic show for you this evening. We're going to go to the picket lines outside the new school in lower Manhattan, where more than 1,900 part-time faculty are in the third week of a strike for better pay and working conditions at that longtime progressive institution. And in the second half of our show, we will speak with a Jewish and Palestinian activist. That'll be two. Jewish and Palestinian activists about a controversial junket to Israel that a number of city council members went on last week and what they have not seen while visiting a close U.S. ally that has been widely condemned as an apartheid state. Before we jump into our first segment, I want to let everybody know that we will be hosting a second special edition of the Independent News Hour from 9 to, p- 9 to 10 p.m. tonight. The show will air as returns start to roll in from a crucial Senate runoff race in Georgia between Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Linda Sarsour will join me as a special co-host and will speak with activists and journalists on the ground, including Mondale Robinson of the Black Male Voter Project and investigative journalist Greg Pallast. Again, that Indie News Hour uh, Georgia election special edition will air tonight on WBAI from 9 to 10 p.m. So, John, why do you think this particular Senate race is so important? Yeah, it's gotten a, a ton of attention. Uh, two, uh, two years ago, the Georgia Senate runoffs uh, tipped the power uh, in the Senate from the Republicans to the Democrats and made it possible for Democrats to at least enact part of the Biden agenda. And, and to be able to uh, uh, staff his administration and make appointments to the federal judiciary. Uh, right now, the Democrats have clinched 50 Senate seats. But if Warnock uh, can win tonight and, and they can lock down a 51st seat, it means a couple of things. One, it, it means uh, the Democrats will be able to uh, run and control the Senate much more effectively in terms of how they control committees. Uh, they'll be able to more swiftly uh, uh put uh confirm uh, federal judges for the judiciary things like that um but also the senate is the democrats are at a deep disadvantage with the senate because uh so many uh sparsely populated rural states are controlled by republicans and uh in 2024 uh the democrats are going to be at a real disadvantage uh they're going to have several seats uh where incumbents will be running for election in states that have really uh, tipped to the Republicans in recent years. So if they're going to have any chance of controlling the Senate after t- 2024, uh, winning tonight will be crucial to that. Because if, if, if they lose control of the Senate in 2024, you could have a situation where, say, uh, Biden or some other Democrat is elected uh, in the presidential race in 2024, where the Republicans control the Senate, they will uh, basically be able to thwart uh, the next administration from being able to even uh, appoint its, you know, its own cabinet officers or anything like that. So at a time where uh, the Republicans continue to really manifest all these uh, authoritarian and, uh, you know, nihilistic tendencies, 
being able to keep uh, the Senate out of their hands, uh, not only uh, in the short term, but the longer run uh, is going to be crucial. And last of all, uh, Raphael Warnock is one of only three uh, black senators in the United States. There's only been 11 black senators in the history of this country dating back to Reconstruction. And uh, yeah. yeah, his victory in Georgia uh, um, two years ago was a real history maker. And, uh, you know, the Republicans really want to roll that back. And, and of course, their candidate, Herschel Walker, is also black, but I mean, he's a widely uh, uh, uh disliked by black voters in Georgia. Over 95% seem to uh, be voting for Warnock. So, uh, you know, Herschel Walker is a former football star. It is really, uh, uh, you know, almost a caricature uh, of a, of a candidate. Uh, and so, and, and, and the difference in the quality of the t- two candidates is enormous. So uh, the difference between having uh, someone like Warnock in office, uh, you know, really he's the former uh a, a, a preacher at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. served. Really, uh, you know, uh, a very well-rounded public servant versus somebody like Herschel Walker, who's just, uh, you know, a, a friend of Trump's and, and you know, really uh, seems completely ignorant of, of any issues and, and has, you know, a terrible personal history. So for, for Herschel Walker to become one of the most prominent black elected officials in this country would be, I think would be a tragedy. So, uh, you know, a, a lot is on, uh, on the line tonight and we'll be uh, following it. I'll be following. It's always important to remember that, uh, Georgians, black Georgians, uh, uh, poor and working class Georgians have been disenfranchised more than those in other states. That's a bad history with that. But now turning to our first exciting segment, um, well, actually, a quick reminder that if you want to hear John talk more tonight and cover cover the live election, um, tune back in from 9 to 10 p.m. or better yet, stay tuned in until then. Now, turning to our really exciting first segment, um, at the New School in Lower Manhattan, uh, more than uh, 1,900, 1,900 part-time faculty have been on strike since November 16th, just two days after their contract expired, and they overwhelmingly voted to strike, I believe, 97%. That walkout came after months of bargaining between the university and uh, the union, which is ACTUAW7902, so a local of UAW, UAW, the United Auto Workers. And on Thursday, Local 7902 announced that its members had voted 1,821 to 88, or 95%, to reject the administration's quote-unquote last best and final contract offer. Despite 18% inflation since 2018, when the last contract was signed, the proposed five-year deal, that last best and final offer, would have limited raises to just 1.8% per year, clearly not covering inflation, um, and had other issues with health care and more that we'll soon hear about. Strikers and supporters have been picketing outside of the university weekdays from at least 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's been a ruckus, and there's been a lot of people attending. And and we heard from some people on the picket line uh, on Tuesday, and uh, that was a week ago. And we're going to go to that clip now. It's going to be two uh, faculty members and a student. already like the raise that they have proposed yeah. is already not tracking inflation so it's kind of like a net pay cut okay. um, by 
2018, so the contract period is five years, and then kind of including uh, back to 2018, it would be a nine-year stretch for that 7% raise to right. cover, right. and there's been like 18% inflation just since 2018. Um, there's that, and then the whole thing with the healthcare, I'm personally not on the healthcare plan, but I feel like it, it's super harmful for people who are on the healthcare plan um, because their premiums are going to go up. to an uber gig economy university uh, well said by gretel daughter a third year student in interdisciplinary science and then uh, the first speaker you heard from was elizabeth castaldo a part-time faculty member and then rachel eight uh, another part-time faculty member who's actually been um at this school for 20 years so now negotiations are being aided by a mediator and progress towards a more equitable settlement settlement appears to be occurring. Actually, this morning, the union tweeted, quote, our bargaining team worked until 4 a.m. and reconvened at 8 a.m. this morning to finish our latest proposal to management. Management has heard our proposal and will get back to us. We have mediation scheduled for tomorrow as well. Meanwhile, the strike and picketing continue, end quote. So more negotiations are scheduled for tomorrow. We are joined now by new school student organizers with the Student Faculty Solidarity Group, which is a group on campus that advocates on behalf of part-time faculty. So we are joined by Cooper Sterling, a sophomore in the BAFA program studying integrated design and creative nonfiction, and Bella Coles, a senior in the Global Studies Department. Cooper and Bella, welcome to the Indie News Hour on WBAI. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're excited to be uh, joined. And just for our listeners, to so be like, why aren't why aren't they speaking uh, to to some of the faculty that's on strike? I believe they're all very busy right now in negotiations. So after a long night of work last night, the union's bargaining 
team sent its latest proposal to the university. Update us on what happened last night into this morning and how the union was able to get to this point um, of a little bit more flexible negotiation. Sure. Yeah, so that's correct. The part-time faculty bargaining committee was in mediation until 3 a.m. and then worked in caucus until 4 a.m. They then reconvened at 8 and presented their latest proposals at 10.30 this morning. The university is now considering them. Since they are just proposals and not formal proposals, a lot is still in play and can change quickly. So the bargaining committee is not able to share the specifics yet. But beyond the details of the what, the why we are here in the situation now is because of the power of the strike continuing after the university gave their last, best, and final offer around Thanksgiving. The part-time faculty, as you said, overwhelmingly rejected the university's proposal with a 95% no vote. By returning to negotiations with the university with the help of a mediator, the university has been making movement again, which demonstrates that final offers are not final until they are ratified. Part-time faculty, as you have said, have not received a raise since 2018, and inflation has been nearly 18% between now and then. The university's last best and final offer offered an 18% raise over its five-year terms, but spread out over nine years. Part-time faculty would only be getting less than 2% increases per year. Who knows what inflation will be during the next five years, so part-time faculty pay would still be decreasing in real-time inflation-adjusted terms. In the latest rounds of mediation, the university has opened up to the possibility of paying part-time faculty for out-of-classroom work. Currently, part-time faculty are paid based on an hourly contact rate, but it doesn't cover all the work they do with the syllabus and lecture prep, grading, office hours, etc. CUNY and NYU adjuncts recently won the right to be compensated for out-of-class hours, and this is a very important paradigm shift that would respect the part-time faculty. There are still non-economic demands that the university isn't being responsive to. For example, part-time faculty want the right to use the union grievance process in cases of harassment and discrimination. This is a right that other unionized workers at the university already have, and it would not cost the university anything. So that's generally where we are and sort of how we've gotten to this point. Right. We uh, followed very closely uh, this time last year, uh, strike by 3,000 graduate students at uh, Columbia University, and I recall the thing the university dug in on uh, the hardest and longest was on uh, keeping uh, harassment uh, provisions uh, out of the contract. Uh, graduate students are often uh, very vulnerable to harassment from uh, tenured faculty, and, and uh, you know, definitely, at, at least at Columbia, the, the, the patriarchy was uh, digging in hard, to, but they ultimately had to concede on that. Um, so I wonder if we're seeing something similar here at the new school. Uh, um, but I, I also just wanted to ask you, uh, you know, the new school, uh, you know, was founded in 1919. Uh, I believe some of the founding faculty or uh, leaders, uh, uh, were, uh, dissidents, uh, who had opposed, uh, World War One. uh, were fired uh, by Columbia for doing so. Uh, in the 1930s, it was a, a magnet for, uh, uh, academics fleeing uh, from Nazi Germany. And so it's a university with a very proud, uh, progressive uh, history. Uh, can you uh, share your thoughts on, on the way both the university has sort of uh, corporatized more in recent decades, uh, Cooper and Bella, and also how educational has this strike been uh, for students like yourself? Uh, you're not in class, but it sounds like uh, you're learning a lot uh, regardless. 
Yeah, I mean, I really want to echo that last point about um, learning and what that looks like, because a lot of people both on the administration and outside have kind of expressed remorse for students losing their learning or their education. And I feel like I'm learning exactly what we spend all day talking about in class um, when I'm on the picket, when I'm talking to faculty um, about the union. I think I think that the school's legacy is a reason a lot of people chose to attend this school. I know it was for me. And so the school itself, the way I think about it, like the professors, the part-time faculty are the ones who uphold that legacy. A lot of them um, are, you know, I've learned so much from them about um, organizing within the campus and outside. And the administration functions as many other educational administrations do, where they are completely concerned with profit, with real estate, and with um, crazy high tuition costs. And then the resources for the students is very little. And at the end of the day, the part-time faculty are the only part of the administration or the school that upholds that legacy. And so to see them be treated like this and to see the university weaponize this kind of social justice rhetoric against them is really, really gross. Yeah, we've seen a lot of weaponizing of social justice rhetoric, um, sort of like as a backlash to the BLM movements from 2014 to, to George Floyd. It's pretty nasty. But um, so let's go back to the picket line, though. Talk about the picket line, what it's been like, sort of explain what a picket line is to our listeners who might not know. And sort of uh, tell me about the worker worker solidarity that is built on the picket line along with the worker student solidarity. Yeah, I mean, so the picket line, um, it's been really, it's been really big. It's, it's been a lot. I've been surprised because a lot of students have really come out every day. And so I know that I've at least made a lot of friends. That's how me and Cooper met. Um, and, and the faculty are there. It's, it's the only time in my four years in which I feel like all of the small schools, um, Parsons, Eugene Lang, the New School for Social Research, all of the small colleges are coming together. Um, and meeting each other. And so it's hard. Like it's, I, the first few days, I felt like I had done like a core exercise because, you know, you're walking all day and it's cold and we've been out there in the rain, but it's, I think it's like a, it's a practice of community building. Um, it is also fun. Like when we try to get students to come, it's, it's fun. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of energy there. Um, and there's a lot of truck drivers who support us. There's a lot of art. We've had some like Muppet, uh, like big bird kind of signs that have been made. It's an art school. So there's, there's been a lot of like space to showcase that and, you know, work through this together and navigate it together. So I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel removed from school right now at all. I feel really, really in touch with school and the community that I went there to find. Yes. And if I can just add, yeah. So the picket line has primarily been taking place in front of the university center at 63 Fifth Avenue. And essentially what this is, this is part-time faculty, students, and anyone else who supports this strike walking in front of the university, either wrapping around the university or just walking sort of in front of the entrance. It's a very spread out campus. So we'll sometimes take picket lines to other buildings. But if I could just speak to the worker student solidarity, um, this has been an incredible, incredibly meaningful way for students to connect with their faculty and to feel that they have an active role in creating change on campus. Like Bella alluded to, there it's a it's a commuter campus. We're not in a centralized um, location on campus, so this has been the most defining, important community building opportunity and just event and cause 
that has taken place at this university. Students are banding together now more than ever. And to see that with their faculty towards a joint achievement of a much more fair, better, equitable contract has been incredible to see. And it's just gotten more and more strong as the university has dug in more and more. Yeah. Right. Right. Can you tell us uh, more about the organization you all are both in, the Student Faculty Solidarity, and why it formed back in January? Yes, so it formed back in January. We were already – so the me, the reason that this organization was put together was for this exact reason. We have been campaigning and supporting part-time faculty, knowing that their contract was going to end, and in light of everything that we've explained – so the, we've been building student support for almost a year now, and um, this has been our number one initiative this entire time. Gearing up for this, we the, the strike wasn't what we were planning for. This was a last resort on behalf of part-time faculty. The administration was not budging. They were being aggressive, and so this is exactly what we needed to do. But Student Faculty Solidarity was put together for the sole purpose of supporting part-time faculty and rallying student support towards a more fair, equitable contract. And and talk to us about how students are being affected by being taught by overpaid Oh, underpaid, sorry, underpaid, overworked faculty. I mean, how does that feel? Can you feel the tension in the classrooms? And then how does it feel to, at the same time, be paying, you know, a incredibly high bill for a top tier private education, yet this is all going on? You can both answer that. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that there's definitely, I noticed a difference between um, both full-time and part-time. A lot of the newer professors that I've had that are part-time are usually fresh out of grad school. And, you know, you can, you feel it in the submission comments you receive. Not that it's like a quality, but you can tell that these people are tired um, in the way that they talk about healthcare. I've had pregnant professors, you know, talk about the experience that they've had navigating family leave, navigating having a baby and teaching, um, And so I don't think, I think while it affects uh, students, I will say that the part-time faculty at the new school are so strong and they're so amazing. And I'm, I don't know how they do it given their circumstances because they really hold it down. Um, But, but currently, right. I think, I think that it really speaks to the fact that the administration doesn't pay them also shows that they do not care that much about our educational quality um, because they know that, we would have a better quote unquote educational quality if our professors were paid, if they had healthcare, if they didn't have to worry about navigating um, basic living costs in the city. Um, so I'm, 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 I think a lot of students are kind of waking up to that if they hadn't already. Yeah. And w- one thing um, I want to add to that is this is something we encountered a lot, especially in the first months of organizing is we had to sort of, educate students or at least shine light on the part-time faculty conditions because often they the students would complain about teachers being underprepared or they'd say you know they they weren't getting what they needed from their teacher uh, outside pay outside work so a lot of that anger and frustration which is you know it's completely justifiable was directed onto part-time faculty and instead what our group was trying to do was say hey look these are great teachers. These are like incredibly intelligent um, teachers and we have a lot to learn from them. But the way the administration has set up their institution, 
by having 87% of their staff be part-time faculty and using this sort of uberization of teaching that we've seen very, very blatantly. Um, that's what we needed to kind of shine light on. So students have been feeling the underpay, but and the, the the lack of benefits and all that stuff. But we had to sort of channel that anger towards the administration and away from part-time faculty. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, now, have you heard from uh, any students that are uh, complaining about uh, being inconvenienced and uh, and also what's going on with the parents uh, who uh, in many cases are uh, footing the bill and probably wondering why the uh, the school is not functioning and, and what the administration is up to? Yeah, um, I can speak to the student side of things. I've, I've had a few students express um, confusion because they are not receiving emails or communication from their faculty because the faculty is on strike. Um, and I think specifically for students who were at the school during the COVID-19 pandemics kind of shut down and navigating that, this feels sometimes like a reiteration. And so I've been trying and others have been really just, as Cooper said previously, trying to stress that it's not like the professors want to be on strike, right? They all care about like the students. I know they do, but it's this is, you know, it's a catalyst. It's after months of, it's, I think that like really students want to learn. And I think that the administration is very good with their language in directing the anger towards part-time faculty. Um, and, and so the students who feel like they are being like deprived of an education, et cetera, I've been trying to just get them to come to the picket line, because I think when you come to the picket line, you see that this is about community. It's not about separating people but the administration is working really hard to make it seem like that. And as for the the parents, um, I spoke to my own father well into strike work, well into being on the picket line and say, hey, like, you know, any thoughts? And he's like, what are you talking about? What strike? What is going on? Yeah. The administration, conveniently for their own advantage, did not communicate to the parents because they knew that, that would awaken a whole nother beast. So we were able to inform the parents about what was going on from our perspective, because all the administration has given is platitudes and just really misdirected um, sort of questions and explanation of the strike. So we really had to work to inform the parents. We've held town halls. We've informed them constantly about what's going on. And they're pissed. They're yeah. considering tuition withholding, tuition refunds. They're they're trying to figure out what they can do, not only for the benefit of their students, but also for their own dollar. A lot of our students here are on scholarship or they need or need financial aid. So this is a big, big problem for many students and for the parents. So the, as one of the parents told it to me, like we awoke the parent bear, essentially. Right. And you would think that this would I mean, a parent would be angry with the institution for not just paying its teachers well enough. Right. Not with the anyone with, you know, who could really look at the situation would be angry at the institution, not the striking workers who haven't had a raise in, you know, since 2018. So anyway, um, uh, I just wanted to sort of like bring this into the greater context of uh, this upsurge in labor organizing and labor movement that we've seen really sort of since 2018, but especially since 2020 uh, here in the U.S. and around the world. So how do you all see yourselves as a part of that? And do you think the sort of, of excitement of students to be to, to, to join the picket line and join the striking faculty is because of the popularization of unions and, and labor and sort of um, what's your hope in this current context of, of labor? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think you're right. I think the like recent wave of strikes and, and, you know, the railroad strike, Chris Smalls and the Amazon labor union. I think these are all, I think people are considering unions again um, as something that can be really beneficial for them. And I've noticed specifically in the new school context kind of branching out is a lot of students here want to teach, not at the new school necessarily, but they want to go on and be teachers. And so they see the teacher struggle kind of, branching out um, into their own livelihood and thinking about them post-grad in the workplace. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's been really like impactful and uplifting and hopeful to see this. I think that um, it's one of those moments where I really feel like there's a collective kind of um, awakening to what we can imagine as work, what we can imagine as, um, as pay and, and as, as life. So I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, as you heard from the one student in the beginning, they were excited and motivated and inspired by the union representation at the picket line from CUNY, from NYU. We've had Star- Starbucks organizers there, Amazon organizers, Chris Smalls was there. So we, we've seen this real solidarity between the various strikes going on and just the various unions. And I think that's been very uplifting for students. And seeing that and seeing them at the picket line and having them give speeches to us, they're starting to understand the gravity of our situation and where we stand in New York, the rest of the country, the rest of the globe. And I think students are starting to awake to the fact that we can really change the precedence for how adjunct faculty are being treated in New York and abroad and in this country. And I think they're really feeling their place in history and how important this moment is right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Cooper and Bella, New School students with the Student Faculty Solidarity Group, thank you for joining us. And uh, just so our listeners know, if you want to follow updates on the strike, uh, you can go to Twitter at UAW7902. That's Twitter at UAW7902. I'm sorry, I don't have non-Twitter options right now, but I'm sure you can do a quick Google search. Um, and then also, if for students who might be listening, Cooper and Bella, is there any way to get involved with the Student Faculty Solidarity Group? Yes, if you go on Instagram and type in Student Faculty Solidarity, you will find our page, and that's where we have everything posted. Yes, please do. Instagram, Student Faculty Solidarity. Cooper Sterling and Bella Coles, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope to talk to you again soon and uh, solidarity for you and all the adjuncts. We're going to take a short music break here and we'll be right back.
That was New Day by Sun Ra. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I am Amber Gagarian, joined by my co-host John Talton, and we're with the Independent Newspaper, New York City's free lefty newspaper, which you can find in news boxes and online and in libraries. Check us out on independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-pendent.org. And before we go to our exciting second segment, we are going to talk a little bit about some labor updates, right, John? That's right. Uh, since we uh, hosted last week's show, uh, at the time we were uh, w- wondering if Congress was going to uh, uh, get on board with uh, the seven days of sick pay that the uh, unions were the rail workers unions were hoping for. Of course, that was uh, shot down uh, in in the Senate. Um, the uh, the Unions uh, ha- had a strike date set for December 9th. I-, I think people have wondered, well, will they mount an illegal uh, wildcat strike? Uh, you know, remains to be seen. So far, there doesn't it doesn't seem to be uh, likely. We're talking about 12 different unions. Uh, so, um, uh, that uh, the 55,000 rail workers belong to, and um, you know, my my guess is that is it, that the defeat they suffered this time may be an impetus for more radical organizing within the rail workers uh, sphere in the coming years. Their next the current contract expires in 2025. And uh, one group that emerged in, in the, in the past year, rail workers United uh, has done a really good job of uh, trying to really sort of uh, knit together the, uh, the, the different uh, the members of these 12 different unions so that they can act in a, in a more, uh, 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 united fashion, uh, in the future and, and, and in a more militant fact, uh, way as well. I mean, one of the things that we really emerged, uh, is, is that the leaders of these, uh, unions really put all their hopes in, uh, President Biden and the leaders of the Democratic Party to, uh, deliver, uh, the demands they were seeking. And uh, as we know, uh, uh, Biden just uh, turned his back on them and, and imposed uh, a settlement that many of the members had uh, voted ag- against and, and basically uh, breaking a strike before it could even uh, start. So, uh, you know, it was a disappointing situation, uh, but, uh, you know, I think it, it, it could be uh, an impetus for a, a more radical organizing to take place uh, in the ranks of the rail workers uh, going forward and uh, just quickly uh some uh much more encouraging news um uh, another uh, union that has been uh plagued in recent years by uh, uh corruption and uh, problems with its top leadership is united uh, auto uh, auto workers UAW um UAW is now one fourth academics as we see over at new school um but uh you know of course UAW uh, started in the 1930s uh, with the great auto strikes of that era, the Flint sit-down strike of 1937, and uh, it really uh, played a key role in, in turning uh, factory jobs into uh, m- uh, middle-class jobs where one worker could support a family and have a, a stable, uh, fairly comfortable life. Of course, the capitalists that run the auto companies have, uh, you know, sought to undermine that to, uh, you know, send the factories to the south or overseas and. Uh, the UAW has uh, weakened uh, over the last several uh, decades, but part of the weakness has been in the leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. UAW, like many 
a national union has an indirect form of democracy where uh, local uh, units uh, send delegates to a national convention who then choose the top leadership. And it kind of creates often uh, that indirect democracy ends up being uh, really no democracy at all. And, and UAW has had several uh, corruption scandals in recent years. Um, and f- the federal government forced them uh, to have uh, direct uh, elections for the first time uh, this past month. And the results came in at the end of last week. And uh, a, a UAW has been controlled by the same uh, a, a group called the Administrative Caucus for over 70 years. In these elections, uh, a rival uh, a militant left-wing slate, Members United, uh, won a number of key posts and, and there, there will be a runoff for uh, UAW president. The Members United candidate uh, finished one point behind uh, the incumbent, uh, like 38 to 37%. There are a number of other candidates Um there's a very good chance that the uh, Members United uh, uh, presidential uh, candidate will prevail in January. So if, if the UAW goes in a in a more uh, rank and file direction, that's a big development in in, in labor. And uh, we, the same thing happened with the Teamsters Union in the past year. The the kind of the Jimmy Hoffa Junior uh, 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 cohort that had been running it for a long time, uh, they were ousted. And now you, you know, uh, Teamsters are or at least uh, say they're planning to have, you know, some very militant actions uh, around their largest contract with United, uh, with UPS that will expire later this year or in, in 2023. So uh, we're seeing some of the, you know, really uh, iconic unions that helped uh, lift the working class in the middle of the 20th century that have waned in recent decades. And now we see a resurgence. As rank and file uh, are, are are pushing to uh, take these unions in a in a more militant direction, because really that's the only hope for them. Otherwise, you just leave it to the sort of encrusted uh, bureaucrats who want to just sort of manage the decline without really doing anything. And 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 we're seeing a pushback against that. At the same time, we're also seeing these uh, new union formations like Starbucks Workers United and Amazon Labor Union. So it's an ex- exciting moment on multiple levels uh, with labor organizing in this country right now. Yeah, absolutely, uh, which we could talk about for a while, but I think we'll leave it at that um, and and go to our second segment. We're going to hear uh, from a Jewish activist and a Palestinian activist about uh, 12 New York City Council members' recent trip to Israel. And uh, I can, can hear on that. Uh, they, it's common, I believe, John, for, for city council members to have the opportunity to go to Israel, um, in the lobbying interests. I could say in short, it, just. Yeah, it's sort of almost a rite of passage, uh, for New York city council members to go on a all expenses, uh, 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 junkets, uh, uh, to Israel. Uh, now, um, what we, let's see here. Uh, so yeah, so you know, interestingly enough, uh, in the midst of all that last week, uh, uh, anti-occupation activists in Israel, uh, confronted the city council members and oh. invited them to see what was going on, uh, with the Palestinians in Jerusalem where they, this encounter uh, occurred. And, uh, 
I think we have a, a, a thought here. We're going to run in a sec that will uh, kind of capture uh, one of these uh, Israeli activists confronting uh, a Bronx uh, City Council member, uh, Eric Dinowitz. So we heard that you'd be on this food tour and we wanted to invite you to take Dara to a protest. Uh, it's forced displacement. Um, you know, I've been living here for a year, and because as a New Yorker, I share a value of commitment to human rights and justice. We thought that it would be like, well, you saw more than just the highlights of this place. So, um, do you know my itinerary? Um, I don't know what you're doing. It's great. So, cool. So, um, Actually, you respect it. I go to my itinerary, and you're already judging where I am, and I'm not going. Right? Do you recognize that? I, I'm not judging. I'm just extending an invitation on behalf of a policy partner. Uh, there have been a lot of phone calls, like tweets. Maybe not for you. Yeah, we're not. Now we've got. It's just a friendly invitation. I appreciate it. Like, but they don't know the itinerary. And that turns out we are seeing a wide array of the experience of people here in Israel. So that was uh, Council Member Eric Denowitz confronted uh, by anti-occupation activists in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we want to now welcome our next two guests uh, to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, we are going to be joined by uh, Beth Miller from Jewish Voices for Peace and uh, Sumaya Ahmad, a New York-based Palestinian activist and organizer. Uh, welcome both of you to uh, WBAI Radio. Thanks so much for having us on. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, so, so first of all, uh, can you just uh, uh, start by sort of setting the scene here? Um, uh, this incident occurred in, in in Jerusalem, but who 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 was sponsoring this trip? Uh, uh, which city council members were participating along with Eric Dinowitz? And, and who was the the uh, this group that was uh, confronting them and encouraging them to uh, look more closely at the Palestinian situation? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to kind of start setting the scene a bit um, and then um, pass it over to Samaya as well for some of the other contacts that's going on in the background here. Um, what's going on is that between November 29th and yesterday, 13, uh, 12 city council members were on a delegation, an all expenses paid junket led by the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, the JCRC of New York, um, to go and quote, learn from Israel and experience Israel and, and see what's going on. This is something that uh, normally happens once a year. The JCRC of New York leads these trips for city council members every year. I believe that they hadn't been happening during the pandemic in past recent years, but this is something that normally takes place every year. And while the the, the JCRC and the, the council members who lead the trip, so for example, council member Dinowitz, who we just heard in that clip, claim that these trips are about showing the complexity of what's happening and that you'll see the full picture of everything. That is, simply put, completely untrue. And you heard Councilmember Dinowitz say in that clip, have you seen my itinerary? Have you seen my itinerary? And yes, we have seen his itinerary. And it is incredibly one-sided. 
Sure, they do talk with some Palestinians, but it is very clear that the message of this trip that is being given to these council members is from the Israeli perspective, and more so than that, from the Israeli government perspective, from the perspective of Israelis who regularly are spokespeople for the government, who speak at places like APAP conferences. This is a one-sided, militaristic perspective trip. And whether or not most city council members who are on the trip knew that is a question, but certainly council member Dinowitz understood it. Certainly the JCRC understands it. The JCRC of New York is a group that regularly supports some of Israel's most hawkish policies. They supported when Donald Trump broke ranks with, with U.S. policy and moved the consulate to Jerusalem. They cheered on the Israeli military during the horrific assault on Palestinians in Gaza in May of 2021. Um, they attacked Palestinian rights activists here in the U.S., it's not, they're, they're not hiding what their uh, bias is. And so, of course, this agenda is going to be one-sided. And our city council members, our local politicians, should not be going to visit an apartheid state instead of staying here and doing their jobs for local New Yorkers, let alone, I will add, just before, you know, to set the stage a bit before we talk about this particular incident, it's also worth mentioning that this trip happened mere weeks after the election of Israel's most far-right extremist government in their own history. And don't get me wrong, the Israeli government has always been violent, has always oppressed Palestinians, but this latest election brought in literally the most far-right extremist fascist politicians that the country has ever had in government. And our city council members saw fit to go visit just a couple weeks later. So what you're seeing in this, or excuse me, what you're hearing in this clip is um activists, most of whom, but not all of whom, are with a group called All That's Left, which is um, an Israeli anti-occupation group. Uh, there were Israelis there. There were Americans who were living in Israel. There was also a Palestinian uh, person there for that moment as well. And they brought with them a letter that was an invitation from a Palestinian resident of Sheikh Jarrah to these council members, inviting them to come to the weekly protest that happens in Sheikh Jarrah every single week to protest Israeli home demolitions and Israeli forced displacement of Palestinian families in this in this neighborhood of East Jerusalem. Um, and so that's kind of the background. I don't know, Sumeya, if you would want to offer a little more background generally on Sheikh Jarrah as well. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, I want to add two things. Um, the first is just to really paint a clear picture of just how one-sided their agenda um, was on on Sunday morning. The the sort of the title of Sunday's sessions was the Palestinian perspective. Um, and that started with 90 minutes in an illegal settlement, Jewish only settlement in the occupied West Bank, meaning their idea of a Palestinian perspective was to go visit um, a, uh, a you know Israeli controlled Jewish only, meaning Palestinians are not allowed in there. They cannot live in there by law. They are not allowed in there um, unless they're workers building these homes and malls and parks on ethnically cleansed land for Jewish Israelis to enjoy while Palestinians are are forbidden from entering. So that was their idea of what a Palestinian perspective um, would look like during during um, this this trip, this tour, this junket, this this propaganda, militarism propaganda that they um, chose to do for for about six days while Palestinians are being slaughtered. I mean, literally slaughtered during the trip. Six Palestinians were killed in the occupied West Bank at different 
at different times. A few days before they left New York City to go on this trip during Thanksgiving, um, in Masafir Yatta, which is a village in the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers demolished a Palestinian school. While the kids were in there, they needed to force them out in order to demolish it. They used um, sound grenades to scare the kids out, out of the school, and then they demolished it. Um, and they're now actually demolishing the makeshift tents that Palestinians put up in order to try to continue the education of, of these children. Um, and, and this is where these New York City council members are right now. They, they've chosen to leave New York City to go across the Atlantic to this state, this apartheid state. It's been labeled an apartheid state by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch. Um, it's undergoing um, an investigation by the International Criminal Court. Um, for atrocities it's committed against Palestinians. And yet city council members made the decision to go there for six days um, and to tour this land. So it's it's kind of, it's it's outrageous doesn't even come close, I think. It's like, what are you doing, right? I mean, I think we should all have the instinct to say, like, what are you doing, council members? Why are you in a state that's being labeled an apartheid state? Why are you not in New York City tending to the needs of New Yorkers? And I'm sure we all know, if you're listening, there are many things we need done here in New York City. Um, and instead, these council members are, are halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we we have to uh, leave it here. Um, but in 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 one minute, let's say thirty seconds for each of you. Any final comments? We'll we'll start with you, Beth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just say, you know. One other thing that Councilmember Dinowitz mentioned in that clip is that they've been getting emails and tweets, and that's because New Yorkers are mad that they went on this trip. And we actually have a tool that you can use to click to email the 12 council members who went on this trip to let them know how you feel about it. And if you go to um, Twitter, JVP Action, uh, you can find that tool and it will help you make your voice heard so you can share directly with the council members as well your feelings about the fact that they just took a one-week trip to uh, visit Israeli apartheid. Right. And Sumaya, thank you. Yeah, I just echoing what Beth said, you know, you, you there's a way for you to participate in this and, and to stop it from happening again. And it's showing council members where you stand and where you want them to be. Um, and that you, you know, you don't want someone representing you to be um, touring an apartheid state, that that's not what it means to be a representative of, of New York City. And thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. And just to shout out that Twitter handle, it was uh, at JVP Action. That's V as in victory. Thanks very much for having us on. Right. Well, uh, Beth Miller and Sumaya Ahmad, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. WBAI is listener sponsored and listener sponsored for us means that we are only listener sponsored. We're not partially listener sponsored and partially corporate sponsored. We are only listener sponsored. So Literally, if you want to keep getting news updates from John and myself and from all the other incredible people who announce on this radio station who have been doing it for years, you have to donate to this radio station. This radio station has been around since 1960. It is the only of its kind. It's the only as independent as it is. And people not only in New York City, but in Long Island and the greater New York region <clears throat> listen to us and depend on us for news. Uh, back in the day, my dad used to come on WBAI. He's a musician. He's an avant-garde jazz player at the time. And he'd come on in the studios and play for WBAI. So when I told him that I was announcing news for WBAI, he was like, 
Heck yeah. That's the only place you should be on the radio in New York City. So please continue that legacy. 212-209-2950 or you go to give number two WBAI.org. The reason this station has continued for all those decades since Amma's dad uh, did uh, uh, j- play jazz on uh, this station uh, is because of listener supporters like yourself calling 212-209-2950 or going to give number two uh, WBAI.org. And, and if you can become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month, uh, you get excellent uh, benefits along the way. Uh, or make a generous one-time holiday donation. Uh, the station uh, needs it. It's several months behind uh, on its uh, antenna uh, rent with four times square. So this is crucial. It's not just uh, asking for you know some holiday candy here. This is uh, urgently needed. Uh, we've got to keep that antenna uh, beaming away. That's 212-209-2950 or give the number 2WBAI.org online. That's 212-209-2950. Give the number 2WBAI.org. Send some money to keep us on the air and uh, we'll we'll keep announcing the news for you uh, with that. And we'll leave it there. We, we'd like to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, and Katie Pruden for bringing us some sounds. And I think you can hear from John again tonight if you tune in at 9 p.m. for his Georgia rush, uh, uh, runoff election special. Right, John? Yeah, it'll be uh, myself and uh, Linda Sarsour uh, co-hosting. And uh, we'll have some excellent guests uh, from on the ground in Georgia uh, throughout that hour. And Linda Sarsour is great. She is a Palestinian-American activist and radio host on BAI. And um, we're going to leave it there with a music outro. The song is Dami Falestini from Palestinian singer Muhammad Asaf. And Dami Falestini means my blood is Palestinian. على ديني على ارضي تلاقيني انا نهلي انا فديهم